All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15 this morning. If you want to turn over to Matthew 15, um, last week, David um, looked at this, this kind of great encounter that Jesus had with the religious leaders, which, which always makes for a pretty entertaining time to me. I don't know if you guys are that way, but I really enjoy the interaction that he has with them. Usually, um, he's pretty hard on them. But, um, you know, the Pharisees specialized in portraying this superficial holiness that was all about appearance. And it really wasn't about loving God or loving people. They looked very good on the outside, but Jesus told them they were like whitewashed tombs that were disgusting inside. And that kind of holiness, you know, it might fool people, it might impress people, but it doesn't fool God and it doesn't impress God. It doesn't even make them the slightest bit happy. And the most tragic part is that, that so many people think that that's like how they're going to get into heaven is by, by you know, portraying this kind, of, this kind of holiness, and it can't. So, you know, may we never be the kind of people that honor God with our lips, but whose hearts are far from Him and detached from Him and, and really don't even know Him, because that kind of holiness really does more harm than it does good. And, and I get... I get pretty frustrated. I get tired of seeing so many people that call themselves Christians, call themselves representatives of God, very outspoken, you know, kind of like the Pharisees and the religious leaders were. But, but really, they're, they're, they're uncharitable, they're unkind, they're ungodly. And, and we see this a lot. It, something doesn't add up when we see this. And this, this kind of hypocritical version of Christianity is something that the world despises and, and that, that we should also... Um, despise because it's, it's not good. Here, here's the thing, and we, we say this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. If God likes you and approves of you, it isn't because of your morality and ethics. It isn't because of your righteousness and holiness. The only way God will approve of us is if we confess that we don't have any righteousness of our own, and we look to Jesus to become our substitute in order to get that righteousness that we need so desperately. So by Jesus going to the cross in our place, taking our sins and the punishment for our sins upon himself, and then crediting his righteousness to us, that's how we can be approved by God, by faith. That's the only way. So there isn't any room for self-righteousness or arrogance in that scenario. One bit, only, only humble gratitude, okay? A self-righteous person doesn't get this because they don't see themselves as a desperate sinner. They don't see themselves as having this need. And this is how the Pharisees and the religious leaders were. They thought they were better than everyone else and therefore more deserving of God's love, more deserving of his, his care and his provision and his blessing. And unfortunately, too many Christians think this way, and this is what creates this us versus them mentality that we see so much in society. We've talked about this repeatedly. What is the difference between us and them? Jesus. <laughs> That's the difference, okay? We're forgiven because of Jesus. We are loved because of Jesus. We are blessed because of Jesus. We are righteous because of Jesus. Take Jesus out of the equation, and we're them. Okay? So we, we can't forget this. We would do well as God's people to constantly remember this and come across this way to unbelievers. We should be known for our humility and our grace to those who um, still need to meet him. So this is kind of, Jesus has just schooled the religious leaders on this point, and then he moves from a rather harsh encounter with the Pharisees to another rather harsh encounter with a Canaanite woman. Now, if you've ever read this account or are familiar with it, you probably wondered, what's, what is Jesus doing here? What's going on? What's, why is he talking to this woman this way? Um, you know, we get why he would be hard on the self-righteous, the Pharisee. We get that part. But why would he be hard? Why would he be this way to, to this 
desperate woman who's crying out for his help. And that's important to know that this section is going to start out by telling us that Jesus leaves Galilee, which is a very Jewish area, and he heads to a place, uh, a region called Tyre and Sidon, which is a very Gentile area. And this is the first time in Matthew's account where Jesus kind of crosses enemy lines and goes into their territory. And, and the very first person that, that he mentions Jesus contacting is a Canaanite woman. Now, again, if you're familiar with, with the Bible, you know who the Canaanites are, right? Now, Mark's gospel refers to her as what they would have called her at this time, a Syrophoenician woman, but we don't, that doesn't mean anything to us. But, but we know Canaanites, and Matthew doesn't want us to miss this. He wants to know who we're dealing with. This is a Canaanite woman. These were the arch enemies of God's people. Uh, th- these were the ones that uh, were still very much viewed that way. So, you know, you've got like Samaritans. They didn't like them. Canaanites were way worse than, than, than the Samaritans. Now, in the previous verse, Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples about what causes a person to be clean and unclean. And this, this, is a, you know, this is a very hard thing for them to understand and get because it went against almost everything they'd been taught in the past. So in their minds, Jewish people who followed God's law were clean. Uh, Gentile people who ignored, God, ignored God's law were unclean. And so for them to really understand what Jesus is trying to teach them, they're going to need a really big paradigm shift. Uh, and they're about to get one. This is kind of neat because Jesus is going to say, hey guys, we're going to go on a field trip and we're going to learn something new today. That's, this is kind of what's happening. So he purposefully travels into this unclean region to have an encounter with an unclean person to teach them something about who he is and what he's doing. And, and at the end of this account, we're going to see that his disciples are going to learn that Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all people, all nations, and that salvation is actually open to everyone. So that, that's, this is where we're at in Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then in verse 32 through 39, the chapter ends out with with Jesus feeding the 4,000. We're going to touch on that briefly. Uh, This passage starts out with this very persistent Canaanite mother crying out to Jesus. And and moms are just amazing to me. Um, They're willing to do anything for their kids. Uh, They're a special 
It's a, spe a special creation by God, mothers are. Even the most seemingly non-confrontational, polite, you know, sweet woman, you know, June Cleaver-esque kind of lady can turn into a, a, a fierce mama bear if one of her kids are in trouble. And this, is, this woman was no exception. Her daughter was suffering. She has the spiritual insight somehow to know this is demon possession. This is a Gentile woman, and she's, she understands this, but she has more spiritual insight. More importantly, she recognizes who can fix the problem. Okay, so I, as Jesus' fame has spread, no doubt they've heard stories, and, and, and you know they, they kind of hear about like what he's able to do. But look at the way she refers to him. I think she knew who this was. I think she knew who Jesus was. When she cries out to him, she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. That's a very specific title. And then it says she kneels before him, she calls him Lord, and she refers to his table as the master's table. That's, that's pretty telling. Now, as a Gentile woman, she knew and understood that God was the God of Israel, and she would be seen as unworthy and unwanted by a Jewish person. And surprisingly, Jesus seems to reinforce this idea in how he, in how he treats her. Why would he appear to, to come across this way, at first at least, as though he was indifferent to her and her suffering? Is that what Jesus is like? No, we know he's not like that. But this isn't the first time I would point out that he's appeared this way. You might recall a time when his disciples accused him of this very same thing, as they're in a boat and the waves are crashing and they're thinking, we're going to sink and die and he's asleep. It's like, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's what they said to him. Did Jesus care? Of course he did. So this is something we have to be careful of because we can easily allow ourselves to be convinced of these same things. When life circumstances start to go awry or the world circumstances, some of like we talked about this morning, start to get, get, you know, the storm starts rocking the boat, we can start to assume Jesus is, you know, doesn't care. And where is he in all of this? Why isn't he listening? Why isn't he coming to the rescue? And I would say maybe, just maybe, he wants us to learn something. Maybe he's trying to teach us something important. Maybe he's testing your faith, or maybe he's growing your faith. Maybe he wants us to learn to fully trust in him and rely on him at all times. Is that a possibility? You bet it is. You know, I think this is an incredibly kind thing for him to do. I am so glad that Jesus has proved my faith over and over to me. And James talks about this in James 1. It says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? steadfastness. Isn't that a great word? I want my life to feel that way. I want, it, I want to be described as steadfast. I want to feel like my feet are on something solid, not like a, a guy that just gets pummeled by every wave that, that comes my way. I want to know steadfastness. And he says, when steadfastness has its full effect, you, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, this is the passage we're, you know, we're in right now. There, there's three things we're going to take out of this that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, the first one is that there are two kinds of people, those who think they deserve God's favor and those who know they don't. The second one is that our faith is extremely pleasing to God. And the third one is that Jesus's plan of redemption includes other sheep. Okay, so first one is this. There are two kinds of people, those who think they deserve God's favor and those who know they don't. Now, if I were to ask you guys, how many of you deserve God's favor? Most of you would, you know, probably I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because there might be that one person then I'd have to rebuke you and say, no, you don't. But, <laughs> but most of us would agree that we don't deserve God's favor, but functionally, we don't always act like we believe that. Okay. 
So if Jesus, like the disciples, if Jesus would have asked them to rank those who are deserving of God's blessing uh, and those who are not deserving of his blessing, they would have put the Pharisees at the top of the list of those who deserve God's favor. Why? Because of their religious law keeping and their morality. That's what made them good people. And then who would they put at the bottom of that same list? Well, that Canaanite woman would have been down there at the bottom of that list. Why? Well, because she was lawless and godless and therefore deserving of God's judgment. She was the bad people. Here's the really weird thing, though. We see Jesus condemn the Pharisees for um, you know, their, their lack of faith and for their hypocrisy. And then we see Jesus commend the Canaanite woman for her faith. So, and he proves it because he then heals her daughter. So he actually blesses this woman in an incredible way. And you can almost kind of see the, the disciples' minds blowing as they, as they watch this transpire. This is completely foreign to their way of thinking. And you might be tempted to think, you know, silly disciples, how can you guys keep getting everything wrong all the time? But we do this too. We do the same thing. What criteria do we use to rank people into good and bad categories? It's, it's pretty similar, you know? We take people that look like us, talk like us, live like us, vote like us, you know, and, and then we put them into the group that we call the good people, and they deserve God's blessing. And then we take the people that are the opposite of that, and, you know, and we throw them into this group called the bad people who deserve God's judgment. And we're basing almost all of this on the same thing the disciples were doing. We're basing it on the outward appearance. You know, it, it's, it's, it's possible that just like the disciples, we're getting this all wrong sometimes. What if that group we think of as deserving of God's favor is the group that's hardest to convince of their need for God and for a savior. And what if the people that we think are the bad people are the ones that might be receptive and responsive to the gospel call? So which group do you find yourself in? Here's, here's a good question. Are you part of the group that thinks they deserve God's favor or part of the group that knows they don't? The really ironic thing is that I've been part of both groups. Um, I've been the desperate and depraved sinner and I've been the self-righteous pietist. I've been both of those things. And I grew up, you know, Roman Catholic. So I was taught basically that God loved me as his child. So I assumed that he really liked me. I mean, what's not to like, right? And, uh, and he, you know, I must be entitled to his love and his provision and, and his care and all of these things. So, so I was part of that group to begin with. I believed I deserved God's favor up until, oh, my teen years. <laughs> When I started to live in such a way that made it really hard to, to continue with that, that uh, you know, mirage, um, I started to live poorly and, and make a lot of bad decisions and, and do things that I knew God wouldn't approve of. And so I kind of switched groups. I became part of that group that knew there's no way I could deserve God's favor based on why I'm acting. So I, I, I was in that group now. And that, that kind of made me desperate. I realized, uh-oh, I'm not only not deserving of God's favor, I'm deserving of his judgment and his wrath, and I'm bound to, to hell that I deserve if something doesn't change. So guess what I did? I became a Christian. <laughs> this was a big day for me. And, and so, you know, that's what happened. So, but here's the really weird thing, is I never thought that after I became a Christian, I would change groups again. That's exactly what I did. You know, as I began to read God's word and, and, you know, the Holy Spirit started to change me and transform me, uh, convict me of sin. And, and I became, you know, 
this newness of life thing started happening, righteousness started happening, and all of a sudden my foul mouth stopped being foul, and my drinking and drugging and promiscuity, all those things went away, and I started going to church, and I started, you know, going to Bible studies every week, I started praying, I'm serving, I mean, you guys would have been really impressed. (laughs) I know I was, yeah. And that's what, that's what had happened. I, I, I started to believe once again that I'm now entitled to God's goodness because of my piety and because of my righteousness, my moral goodness. And, and that's where I was for a while, back in that group again, thinking I deserve his favor. You know, look how special I am. Look how much he likes me. And, and it was for the wrong reasons, though. And, and, and it wasn't really until I began to understand um, a specific doctrine in the Bible that's not super popular that I began to realize how holy God is and how wicked and black-hearted I am. And it's the doctrine of total depravity. I prefer total inability because I don't like to think of myself as totally depraved. <laughs> but, but it's this, this thing of like, I didn't understand my true predicament. I didn't understand this gap that existed here. And th- this is the reality for everyone, is that we are sinners. We are in a deep dark hole that we could never make our way out of. And somehow God in his mercy pulled me up out of that pit and he set my feet upon a rock and he washed all of my filth away. And then he clothed me in this pristine white robe of righteousness and made me a new creation. And every bit of that is a result of Jesus's work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and my faith placed in that. This is how it happened. At what point do I start getting to take credit for that? right? And start bragging about what took place. Like, hey, check out my duds. Look at my righteous, look how nice and shiny my clothes are compared to your, your drab attire. This is what I was doing. If you're a Christian, this is the, this, the same reality for you, whether you realize it or not. It's all due to the unmerited grace of God and, and his favor. None of it is earned or deserved. And so that means no matter how much I grow in my faith, how much I read my Bible, how perfect my church attendance is, how much I pray, how many Bible studies I go to. Those things are important. Don't misunderstand, but they will never allow me to merit God's kindness and favor. Only Jesus can do that for me. You know, this is the, this is the same discovery um, that John Newton had, who, who penned a hymn that we still sing today that I love. And you guys will recognize this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good fellow like me. Is that how you guys know it? No, that's not it, is it? That saved a wretch like me. We don't like to be called wretches. We don't like to acknowledge our wretchedness. But, but here's the thing. I've observed that the Christians that get this, that really understand this, are the Christians that I admire the most. And, and again, I know we're not supposed to judge whether or not somebody's a Christian or not, but the ones that I have, I, I really see that they're the real deal. Those that understand this and have really gotten it. And I like to kind of, I refer to this as worm theology. It's not a, it's not a popular <laughs> concept. Um, the passage we're in, dog theology might be better. Uh, but but it's, it's really what, you know, since coming to this understanding, I've seen my faith grow. I've seen my gratitude grow. I've seen my worship grow. And I've seen my charity toward other wretches grow. And this is what I see in this mother that so desperately pursued Jesus. She didn't seem to mind being referred to 
as a dog. Did you notice that? Jesus said, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she didn't respond with, well, I never, how dare you? She, she didn't seem to be offended. She simply said, yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She understood who she was, and she understood who he was, who she was standing in front of. She saw the gap, and she didn't seem to mind this. She understood her unworthiness. She owned her dogness, and I own mine. I'm convinced that because of this, I will never change groups again. I will forever be in the group that recognizes how unworthy I am of God's love. And I'm humbled to have it. I don't understand even how I got it other than his complete mercy. I don't deserve the crumbs that fall from his table. And yet he's adopted me as a son, seated me at his table and allowed me to enjoy the king's feast. Isn't that crazy? But that's, that's what I get. Now, a quick side note to mention, because I know some of you guys are going, yeah, but he called her a dog. There are two words for dog in the Greek, and this isn't going to erase the blow, but it's going to soften it a little bit, okay? One, one word for dog is the way a Jew would refer to a Gentile. Uh, this is the, the, the very negative idea of, that, that refers to that wild, mangy scavenger that's just running loose through society. Then there's another word for dog that that refers to like a small dog or a puppy. This would be like a beloved pet that gets to live inside with the family, that kind of an idea. That's the one Jesus uses. And, And the interesting thing is the Canaanite woman would have been used to being called the first variety of dog by a Gentile, right? She's used to hearing that one. So when Jesus uses this word, not only is it, you know, his disciples would have gone, oh, wait a sec. Yeah, he didn't call her that, but it would have been a wink to her as well. So for what it's worth. That's important, I think. Okay, that's the first one. The second one is this. Our faith is extremely pleasing to God. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God and that God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And, and this woman is like the poster child of this, this thing, right? She did, she did both. Now, there's, a, there's this, um, I believe, a horrible theology out there. It's called the word faith movement. Uh, it's really based on prosperity. It kind of teaches that faith is, is the power of positive thinking. If you believe hard enough and long enough and uh, w- you know, with all your might, it will come true. God is now obligated to answer your prayer because of your amazing faith. Um, and so you get what you want by, by, by believing these things. I would say biblical faith is different than that. Now, biblical faith has something in common in that we believe that God can do anything. He is capable of doing anything. Okay? But it also believes that he knows what's best for us, that he wants what's best for us, and therefore we're willing to accept whatever the outcome is. That's biblical faith. Even if it's not what we think should happen and, we, and we're okay with it, that's biblical faith. So Tim Keller puts it this way, and I think it's a good quote. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows, Okay. And, and I think this is true. It, it's, it's good. So that's what faith in God looks like. That's the faith that's pleasing to God. And, and not only that, but it's, it's much more impactful to spectators who see it. So the testimony of our faith is magnified when we're going through difficult times, and, and yet we're still trusting God. We're still praising his name, um, even when we don't get what we want. That's an amazing thing to, to, to witness. This is why Job could say, though he slay me, yet I trust him. 
That's a powerful testimony. And, and I, I think the disciples in this scenario with this woman, they would have had a very difficult time believing that this woman could have faith at all, let alone this kind of faith. Uh, this is why they were crying out to Jesus uh, the whole time. It's kind of funny because I'm a little convicted by it. When I hear what they were saying, I can pic- picture myself doing this. They're annoyed by her persistence and she just she won't leave them alone. They're just, she's tracking them through town, crying out to them over and over and over again. And you can hear them going, Jesus, just send her away already. I mean, number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's a Canaanite. She probably deserves to have a demon-possessed child. I mean, that's what they were acting like. And she's driving us nuts. Can you just tell her to go home already? You know, James and John are probably like, can we call down thunder, Lord, or fire from heaven? Not that the sons of thunder, but this, this is what they were like. And, and I, I just think, am I ever that way? Am I ever so annoyed and irritated with people that I let my irritation eclipse, you know, their need, my, my view of their need for Christ? This woman was desperate and hurting, and they could not have cared less. That's convicting. But I love that none of that got in the way of her faith. She had a big problem, and she knew Jesus was the only answer. She didn't care what anyone else thought. She wasn't trying to win man's approval. She was willing to do whatever it took to get to Jesus. Because once you realize that Jesus is the answer to your greatest need, you, you will do whatever, you will forsake everything else to get to him. She wasn't worried about being embarrassed, made fun of, being harassed, being rejected. She was desperate. Does that describe you in regard to your relationship and your need for Jesus? Does that, does that describe your faith? I love Jesus' response to her. You can almost hear the joy and pleasure in his voice. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And he healed her daughter. He was pleased by her faith and, and by her reliance upon him. And he's equally pleased when we, when we do that today, when, we're, when we trust him. So why, why was there this apparent, apparent indifference with Jesus uh, at the start? I, I believe the answer was so that his disciples... And so that us today, we, we, we would see the example of this woman's tenacious faith and that we would be inspired by it. And I know that I am. I just think, wow, this is so cool. I want to be more like her, right? And I also believe that he wants us to see that he really is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I mean, the way that he did this, he answered this prayer for her. He delights in giving us the desire of our heart. He enjoys that. And, and he healed her, her daughter in, in this regard. And then I also believe one other thing, that Jesus was giving his disciples a preview of of coming attractions, so to speak. The inclusion of other nations into the people of God, into into that flock. Um, The the inclusion of the unclean is really what it is. And not that the Jewish people weren't unclean, but but this is a whole new thing. And so this is the last point. Jesus' plan of redemption includes other sheep. Now, Tyre and Sidon geographically were like 50-some miles away from Galilee where Jesus had previously been. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention anything else that happened there, just this interaction with a the, with the Canaanite woman. And it kind of reminds me of a time when Jesus traveled through Samaria, which a, a good Jewish person didn't travel through Samaria, but he had an important appointment that day with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. Again, this is, this is kind of a similar thing. You know, God sometimes just makes these divine appointments to meet with somebody important to him. And if you're a Christian today, there's a point when Jesus had you pinned in on his calendar to meet you. Isn't that cool to think about? I just love that, you know? He went out of his way to meet this person so that they could know him. This woman represents somebody who was outside of the people of God. 
So she was a stranger to the covenants and the promises that God had made with his people, which is why Jesus makes the statement, I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a true statement. Jesus had a priority and ministry, the Jew first, and then the Gentile, keeping in mind that they had not rejected him yet up to this point, but that they soon would. So him preferring um, the people of God over those who weren't his people would have been a normal thing to do. In fact, it would be kind of like a father who had hungry children and they're starving and they're, they're like, their tummies are grumbling and he goes out and feeds all the neighbor kids first while they watch. I mean, a dad wouldn't do that. They're, they're his first priority. They're his first responsibility. And this is kind of what we see here. So the book of Romans makes it clear that when the nation of Israel rejects their Messiah, the way is opened for the neighbor kids to come to the table, right? And, and this is coming soon. This was actually the plan from the beginning, by the way, you know, that he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so this is kind of the, the point of the rest of the, the passage that we're looking at today. When we read through verses 29 uh, through the end of the chapter, it should look very familiar to you. You've got Jesus kind of pulled away to seclusion, and then the crowds come, and they're, they, they, they are, they're sick, and they're, they're desperate, and so he starts healing them all, and then they're hungry, so he starts feeding them all, and you're thinking, didn't we just, didn't we just cover this? Like, yeah, we did in chapter 14. And, and this, is, this is a similar account, but it has a much different emphasis. The big difference is who he's healing and feeding here. These are Gentiles. See, you, you may not know it because it, it kind of says, you know, Jesus traveled back to Galilee, but, but Matthew's, um, that's what Matthew's gospel says. But Mark's gospel pinpoints the location. It says that he was in the Decapolis, which, which is a, this 10 city area of the Greeks. This is all Gentile land that he's still in right now. And this is confirmed further by the people's reaction. You remember they said they wondered when he did these things. And what do they do? They praise the God of Israel. Well, who would say that? People who aren't you know, part of Israel. That, that's, that's significant. Why is this so significant? And here's why. Because we see Jesus providing the same compassionate love of healing and feeding to the Gentiles as he did to the Jewish people. This is, this is mind-blowing. It's similar to the book of Acts. You remember how the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on the Jewish people and they saw that and went, oh, wow, this is, you know, they, they saw what it looked like now for what, what he was going to do. Well, then they saw it like the Samaritans. They, they saw the same thing. And then Peter saw it at Cornelius's house. And what was the point? We're not different. It doesn't mean that every time somebody becomes a Christian that you're going to see the Holy Spirit fall on them and they're going to speak in tongues. People do that with this and, and run, run amok with you know, weird doctrines. It's so that they could see we're the same. Gentiles and Jews are the same. This is remarkable. You know, sometimes we need a, a big object lesson to get a point. And that this whole section is basically describing like a short-term missions trip that Jesus went on with his disciples to give them a preview of a great commission that he'll be giving them soon so that they'll know what that's going to look like and who they're going to be reaching and what they're going to do and that it's okay. He's going to tell them, you're going to go to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and then into all the earth with this message that, that Christ is Lord. So they had a lot of adjusting to do, the disciples, and uh, you know they had to learn. God has a plan for every tribe, tongue, nation, we would do well to remember that lesson because I think sometimes we can get so focused on our country and, and our church and these kinds of things that we can forget about this very thing. You know, there's, there's, are there Canaanites in our, in our life, people that we think are outside of God's reach or outside of his 
you know, who maybe aren't deserving of, of his focus and so forth, I would have just remind you that described you at one point, right? We were all one of those people that were outside and then he brought us inside. And this is remarkable. You know that God made a way for you into his family and that he didn't have to. I, I, just, I just love that anybody who cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, can be saved. This is pointed out in Romans 10, verse 11 says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for, all, for the same Lord of all bestowing riches on all call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love, we're, we're part of God's expansion program. And, and if you recognize that today, be grateful for it, um, be thankful for it. Uh, it just blows my mind that he made a place for me at his table. And, and so we're going to pray, we're going to sing a song of worship, and then uh, just, just let that wash over you through the week as you think about God's favor towards the unworthy like us. Father, thank you so much that you have, you have not only provided crumbs that fell from your table for us, but, but you've actually adopted us as sons and daughters. We recognize this is all because of Jesus, because of what he did for us at the cross. And, and we should be the most humble and grateful people on the planet, and we should be willing to let everybody else around us know about this. So thank you, Father, for being a God of mercy. Um, thank you for being a God of grace. Um, thank you that we get to be called your people. What a privilege that is. Amen.